Help your four-year-old find joy in learning. Waterford Upstart is a proven effective pre-K learning program that includes fun songs, games, and activities that prepare your child for success in school. We provide all the tools you need to help your child learn to read, including a coach, a computer, and internet access. And because it's already paid for, it's free for you. Enroll today at waterfordupstart.org. When you sign up for BP Me Rewards, you can get five cents off every gallon of gas every time at BP or Amico stations. That means more savings and more whatever you'd like to use your savings on. So treat yourself. It's on us. Visit bp.com slash save to learn more. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. Now, this week we've got a bit of a fun episode. This isn't one I don't think many of you would have guessed by looking at the picture, um, because it is basically a collection of the world's worst jobs. Um, this is not throughout history, this is just specific to the Second World War. So, these are some of the jobs that people were forced to do during the second world war or or asked to do in some cases um that realistically makes you wonder why you hate your job uh, so much um it's a video that i i found a couple of videos online um and i did a little bit of research into it to find out what the basically the top worst jobs were during the second world war now some of them were quite obvious um some of them you would you probably would have guessed yourself um you know without even thinking about it um but some of these are a little bit strange and jobs that i didn't even know existed during the second world war before we get into this um i would like to say that um i've i've mentioned it in a couple of shows and and i will be mentioning it in future shows that we have got uh, 100 shows coming up very, very soon within the next sort of five or six weeks. And the point I'd like to make is we are trying to do a bit of a special episode. Now, when my dad first joined us on the show, um, he promised he was only going to do one episode, which was the Titanic, um, because that's his passion. He then decided to do Jack the Ripper and pretty much fell in love with what he was doing um and is has enjoyed joining me on the podcast and sort of seeing this journey through with me so i've come up with an idea uh, around episode sort of 15 or 20 last time we did an ask me type of podcast where you listeners would submit questions to me and I would endeavour to answer them to the best of my ability. Now I did mention it on the last show um, and the show previous to that um, and I have had a bit of a response. There's only been a couple of people who have actually messaged with with some questions. Um, now if you go back to the that episode which was get to know your host um, you'll obviously know some of the questions from there so try not to repeat those but if you do have any questions for me and in this instance dad as well uh, my dad that is not uh, not yours but if you have any questions that regarding us um, as as father and son any questions regarding um, history or just us in general anything like that then you know feel free to ask us those questions get those questions across to us um now a lot of people don't want to put them in the group so you don't have to do them on the group on facebook but if you do go onto the group you will see that me and and dad regularly post on that group so it is very easy to contact us directly through direct messenger that way or failing that you can send me an email on twihpod at gmail.com or if you are on patreon which some of you lucky people are 
um, you can also message me through there as well. And then when we come to episode 100, we will answer these questions. Now, if you don't want to mention your name, then let us know at the bottom and we'll say uh, we won't mention who asked us the question, but you'll still get your answer. Um, pretty much anything goes, I would say. Um, I'll, I'll even give you political opinions if you so desire. Um, I have tried to avoid that as best as possible. But moving forward, we'll get on to the episode. Now, one of the main, or what I would say most obvious, um, bad jobs in the Second World War was that of a bomber turret gunner. Okay, now for those of you who don't know what a turret gunner is, that is the tiny little ball that sits underneath the fuselage of a bomber aircraft. Um, for the British, it was the Lancaster bomber, um, and I believe some of the Halifaxes had them as well. Um, and the, for the Americans, uh, your B-42s and your B-52s had them as well. Um, and, and some other aircraft also had turret gunners. Now, the turret gunner was a very, very difficult job. Okay, The ball hanging at the bottom of the aircraft was roughly three foot wide. Um, and that was where they got in. So they would get in on ground level. The sort of hatch would open. They would squeeze themselves into a tiny little uh, little ball um, and pretty much be in the fetal position for the entire flight. Um, they'd be surrounded by two fifty caliber rifles, um, and that is it. That was their that was their job. Now, some of these did have an escape hatch to the top um, to allow the turret gunner to escape had the plane been hit or needed to go down uh, for any reason so that the turret gunner could parachute out. The problem is these hatches were not reliable, they were not safe, and they were very, very difficult to get out of considering the position that the turret gunner was in in the first place. So, in other words, if you was in this position on an aircraft, your aircraft was going down, you were pretty much going down with with the plane. Um, there's rare occasions on where the planes would hit such a, an altitude where uh, frost would come on the inside of the turret. Um, there were stories of turret gunners having sort of their beards and their moustaches, their eyebrows, eyelashes all frozen solid, uh, getting frostbite on their hands as well, because these were tiny little glass balls. They weren't uh, they weren't insulated in any way, shape or form. Added to that, they were a really good target for enemy aircraft. If they could take out the turret gunner, essentially there was no- nothing um, protecting that aircraft from behind. Um, in that instance, it's just a, an easy target, a massive aircraft with no protection whatsoever. So the job of a turret gunner was very, very dangerous. Now, there was no real statistics behind it, but one uh, historian has managed to say that the average life expectancy of a turret gunner was roughly two weeks, Okay which is the equivalent of about five missions. So if they could get five missions out of a turret gunner, they were doing a pretty good job. One turret gunner who actually survived the Second World War said that the chances of survival was probably around 32 seconds. Um, So for every, basically, the, the survival rate was 32 seconds. That's someone who experienced it, someone who lived it and obviously saw a lot of his friends die. Um, but the statistic we'll go with is probably one one every two weeks. You, you had a two-week life expectancy as a turret gunner. Another quite bad job. Um, I would say quite bad in the sense that the, this job had quite a reputation to go with it. Um, and that was the German U-boat crew. Now... Obviously, the U-boat, you could say all submarines, um, but the German U-boats in particular were a lot worse than the Allied submarines. And the main reason for this was the size of them. 
So a German U-boat was roughly 61 metres or 200 feet in length um, and was at its widest point about 15 feet wide. They had a crew of anything up to 100 men um, and they were responsible for shooting down over 3,000 Allied ships. So they had a real reputation for being on U-boats. These U-boats were feared by every navy in the world. And they were even feared, like I said, by the Germans themselves, purely on the basis that if you were a seaman on one of these U-boats, you were very, very cramped. You know, trying to squeeze that many people into such a small area... They worked uh, very, very long days, 16-hour days, um, and eight-hour hours sleep. They were taken in turns, so they were done on eight-hour shifts. So each shift would have 16 hours work, followed by eight hours sleep. Um, you could be underwater for anything up to six months. These U-boats were very, very well-equipped, Um but again, I mean, this does go down for all submarines, um, but with the U-boats in particular, they were built with one toilet. Because of the size, they had one toilet for anything from 50 to 100 men, uh, no bathroom, no washing facilities, nothing like that at all. Um, so they were not hygienic places to be. They were probably quite smelly. They were definitely very, very cramped. And it just, I can't imagine the job itself being any fun. Um, there was nothing, I mean, obviously war itself isn't fun, but this in particular, I think, has quite a, a nasty aspect to it. Very much unhygienic, unsanitary. Just, it, it really doesn't seem like a really nice place to be. And considering the reputation that these U-boats had, you would assume that, I mean, my assumption was that the U-boats were very well, uh, you know, very well equipped, very well armed, probably very well staffed. The people on it were obviously, I, I don't think I ever really thought about the conditions that they were in. Um, but yeah, apparently being on a U-boat was one of the worst jobs to have during the Second World War. And like I said, I do think this goes for all submarines. Um, but the British, the Americans, um, their submarines just tended to be a little bit better um, for the crew. Well, for actual hit rates cons uh, compared to the Germans, they were nowhere near as effective. Um, but I think they were just a little bit nicer for the crew. The next one I would say is probably the first thing I thought of, um, and that is the role of the kamikaze pilot, um, the Japanese pilots during the Second World War. I think that was pretty self-explanatory, those pilots that were told to take off and not to come back. They were told to basically crash their aircraft into uh, the enemy ships normally it was uh, ships um, with their explosives on board and make sure they hit their target so not really a very um, not a very nice job um, you know knowing that you're not coming back obviously the mentality of the Japanese soldiers was vastly different to that of the western allies Um 1940s Japan a lot of them were still in the samurai mindset the old samurai warriors um you know that I will will die for honor and would die for their country and and had no fear of death that sort of um attitude was still quite strong in Japanese culture and this is why kamikaze pilots were available to the Japanese. Now, it's not something that the British or the Americans, Germans, or any other nation actually used, but the Japanese decided that this was one of their options. And the Japanese had certain aircraft that would be tasked for this. One of them was called the KI 115, um, and this was specifically designed for kamikaze pilots because after takeoff, once they got to, um, a certain height 
the landing gear would actually fall off the aircraft, meaning it didn't really matter whether they were going to to hit their target or whether they were going to chicken out because that aircraft wasn't landing again. Um, they were going to crash land it somewhere and they were going to die. So the, you know, they even did things like that to just remove the landing gear from the aircraft. There were even aircraft that were taken off by other aircraft and used in flight without a landing gear. So they were built without landing gear, um, almost like a modern-day glider um, taken off with another aircraft and then the winch detached, leaving the aircraft in the air without a, a landing gear and without a safe way home. So, in other words, you, you're going to die, so you might as well hit your target and take something else out as well. Although quite a scary job um it was very unsuccessful during the war it was it was under 20% of kamikaze pilots actually managed to hit their target um and a lot of these uh, you know the statistics come from early in the war before the allied had actually learnt how to combat them as soon as they realized that these guys were heading straight for the ships or straight for whatever their target was they were pretty easy to shoot out the sky because they very rarely deviated from their course so a plane coming at you in a straight line was a lot easier to hit than a plane maneuvering around from the bullets so they tended to be very unsuccessful and a lot of japanese soldiers uh, and pilots actually lost their lives um I mean, they would have lost their lives anyway, obviously being kamikaze, but they lost their lives almost for for no reason whatsoever because they were just shot out of the sky. Here's one I bet you didn't hear of or have never heard of, and that is the human torpedo. And it is as crazy as it sounds. Now, my first imagination of the human torpedo would be somebody inside a torpedo being fired at a ship and you wouldn't be very far wrong with that another option could be the the Italians had a human torpedo um, which was a converted torpedo with two seats on and I mean seats as in driving seats on a torpedo and this was essentially two divers one at the front one at the back would sit on a uh, on a torpedo, go under the water, and travel the torpedo along to the the bottom of a ship, and attach the explosives to either side, get a safe distance away, and detonate from there. Not a very fun job, because you're actually sat on explosives. Um, one wrong move one false bump, anything like that, and you are blown to smithereens. There is nothing left of you. Um, Not only that, you're in very murky waters. Uh, The Atlantic was probably normally the place where this would have been done, possibly the Mediterranean for the Italians, but very murky waters, very unclear visibility, and not an easy job to be doing. But the Germans went one better. And this was called the Nager submarine. Okay. Now this was a torpedo that was hollowed out with a little dome on the top for the driver to sit in so he can steer the torpedo. And underneath it was another torpedo that was attached that could actually fire. So... As crazy as that sounds, that is a a man inside a torpedo firing another torpedo. Again, very dangerous, not such uh, a fun. And with this one, you've got the the added bonus of not only could you cause damage through the poor visibility from the warhead going off or anything like that, you also had to deal with leaks or anything that could potentially leak into the submarine-slash-torpedo that the driver was sitting in, um, just because this this driver in particular, or pilot in particular, was not in scuba gear. 
So as opposed to the other style of human torpedo where they were in a scuba diving suit, in this instance, they were not. So any leaks or anything like that was also another thing that these potential risks had to be taken into account. The Germans were so unsuccessful at this, they actually managed to lose 80% of their human torpedoes uh, without success. So 80% just didn't even work and caused a fatality. But believe it or not the Japanese had to go one better. And they created one called a Kaiten, which essentially is, I would say, got to be up there with one of the worst jobs ever to be created. Now, if you thought a kamikaze pilot was bad, this was a kamikaze human torpedo. You were strapped into the torpedo. You could control where the torpedo went, and your job was to plow your torpedo full of explosives into the side of a ship or submarine and die with it. Um, didn't even know this existed. Didn't know hum a human torpedoes existed. Certainly didn't know that the Japanese had built a kamikaze version of it. Now, some of these jobs were crazy. Some of these jobs were just dangerous. The next one we're talking about is dangerous. Now, the British had a merchant navy fleet. Um, I'm going to concern myself with the Americans in this particular instance. And the reason I'm doing that is because the British, mer the British merchant navy fleet travelled all around the world to collect supplies. They travelled to uh, Western Europe, down to Africa, across to India, over to America, um, all over the world, okay? And they were, they had the ability of changing their course accordingly. The American Merchant Navy, which was probably one of the most essential things to help the Allies in the Second World War. Had it not been for the American Merchant Navy, the Second World War potentially would never have been won. Um, even at, at best, it would have prolonged the war had the American Merchant Navy not existed. And the reason for that is a lot of the supplies that were coming across from America to Europe were to support the war effort. And... The only way in these times to bring that across was via naval ships, which made them a very, very good target for German U-boats, German ships, um, and you know enemy ships as well. So at the start of the war, Russians, um, even the Japanese ships, things like that, they were a very, very easy target. And because of this, uh, there were over 12,000 injuries to merchant sailors and over 8,300 deaths. Um, it was a very, very dangerous job. And the main reason for this is they weren't heavily armed. Some of them weren't even armed at all. They had escort ships. Um, and as you probably have seen pictures before, some of these escort ships could be anything up to five miles away. They weren't next door to each other. These escort ships were sort of at a distance. You know, the Bismarck, for example, could sink a target at 15 miles away. They could be behind the horizon and still shoot you. So the concept of the merchant navy and not being as heavily gunned made it a very, very dangerous job. And because it was so essential to the war effort made them such a, an obvious target for the Germans. From the statistics that have been worked out, the American Merchant Navy was losing 33 ships per week during the Second World War. Now, when you compare that to a country that in 1941 when Pearl Harbor was attacked, had one of the smallest navies in the world, to be losing 33 merchant ships a week is unheard of. 
it's it's unbelievable how many of these ships actually were sunk or captured by the Germans. In fact, the death rate was 1 in 26. So if you were a merchant sailor, you had a 1 in 26 chance of never coming back. So if the merchant navy doesn't scare you, let's imagine you're at war. You're in a German or Russian army. And it was mainly the Germans and Russian armies. And you decided to break the law or break the rules. Now, this could be anything from desertion to um, the, the Russians had a slogan called not a step back, which meant that any Russian soldier caught retreating would be arrested. Um, so even at Stalingrad in 1942, when the Germans absolutely destroyed Stalingrad, all of those Russian soldiers that retreated were arrested and they were forced into what was called a penal battalion or a prisoner's battalion and their job was, and this is the same for the Germans, their job was essentially a human shield. So they were then sent out on the worst jobs. They were sent out, for example, ahead of the regular troops across a minefield to clear the mines out of the way. And if they stepped on one and blew up, it didn't really matter because they were prisoners. They weren't given any special equipment to get rid of the mines. They were just sent out. You're the prisoners, German prisoners, German soldiers, but you're still prisoners. Um so you're going to go and walk across this minefield and make sure that it's clear for the regular soldiers to go across just because we don't want the regular soldiers to die. Uh, we'd rather you died. Um, this was just one of the jobs that the penal battalion found themselves in. There were over 500,000 soldiers that found themselves in penal battalions across the German and Russian ranks. Um, one German, so, uh, one Russian, sorry, battalion consisted of 900 men. Um, their role was, like I said, they were used as basically as human shields. And out of the 900 that went out, only 300 came back. Um, so again, this just gives you a, an, an idea of how these guys were used. They were just, I mean, we hear the, the, the word all the time in this country is, is cannon fodder. Um, but that was essentially what they were. They were cannon fodder. They were just sent out to just basically be shot and take up. As long as the regular soldiers weren't killed, it didn't really matter. So, yeah, they weren't, uh, they weren't treated with the right sort of respect. Um, yeah, not a good job. Not a not a good thing to be uh, to be dragged into. Unfortunately, I am going to issue an apology before I say this one because it does not paint the Americans in a very good light. Um, it's not a dig. It was just a fact of life. Unfortunately, in the Second World War, America did not have a standing air force until 1941. The problem with this is when they joined the war, they were very, very under-equipped in regards to aircraft, meaning that everything that they built, sent out, um, flew, was underdeveloped, underworked, and under-tested, to the point that during training, and this is just training, over 15,000 US airmen lost their lives just in training because they genuinely had no idea how to use aircraft at the start of the war. Now, obviously, now the US Air Force is probably the most advanced and accomplished air force in the world. Um, but in 1941, unfortunately, it was such a new air force they really didn't know what they were doing. Um, and because of this, it cost the lives of thousands of men 
just because they were literally under-trained and underdeveloped aircraft. If you want to add to the embarrassment here, the Americans lost 65,000 aircraft during the Second World War. Out of this 65,000, only 23,000 of these aircraft were lost due to uh, battles. So in other words, 42,000 aircraft were lost without firing or without engaging with the enemy. That's not a very good statistic. In fact, 65% of all aircraft lost, American aircraft, this is, that was lost during the Second World War, was lost without ever entering combat. So if you can imagine how easy the Second World War would have been if the Americans had a better air force at this time because they could develop and you know produce more aircraft than all of the western powers combined and that shows you know and a, a, you're talking about a country that didn't have an air force in 1941 and by the end of the war had managed to lose 65,000 aircraft that's 4 years in a 4 year period they managed to lose 65,000 aircraft when they didn't have any prior to that. Um, you know, all their aircraft were on aircraft carriers. They did have aircraft, but no standing air force. So, although it does sound like quite a bad statistic, I would say realistically, um, had they have had a better air force or better training or, or even better equipment at the time, the war could have been won so much quicker um, had they had the might of the Air Force that they have now. Oh, this does sound like I'm having a little bit of a dig here, but you've got to remember how quickly America were forced into the war. You know, um, 1939, the war starts in Europe. 1937, the war starts in Japan. Um, 1940, 1941, it comes to sort of five years or four years after the invasion of China before America is attacked at Pearl Harbor and you know at this point they are pretty much they're, they're avoiding the war at all costs you know America was dragged into the first world war a war that a lot of Americans didn't want to be involved in they saw it as a European war they did they weren't interested they didn't want to get involved then when they did get involved and lost a lot of men, they were certainly not keen to jump into a second European war. So they were very reluctant at this point to join and they were thrust into the war. And because of this, they had to ramp up their production of pretty much everything. And when you actually look at the German, uh, sorry, the German, the American war effort during the, the second world war i would say barring their navy which was quite impressive um their tanks their munitions their aircraft they were under par at the start of the war coming towards the end of the war they were starting to to come up with newfangled ideas you know obviously um, the B-52s, the atom bombs, things like that, things that completely changed modern warfare. But I would say at the start of the war, they were so far behind the Western powers, um, they just had to really speed up their production. And because of this, they didn't test, they didn't run through the security measures that they probably would have done had they have been given more time to prepare for war. Just to give you a, an idea, they actually had a plane called the Marauder. Um, it was that bad of a plane. It was so nose-heavy that even during takeoff, it struggled to take off because the nose dipped and it would plow into the ground. Um, and on landing, sometimes it would land nose-first, which is just a death sentence. Um, this aircraft was actually nicknamed the Widowmaker. Now, if you've got an aircraft... That you've put into production called the Widowmaker, 
you know you've done something wrong. The next job, I would say, is something that would agree, most soldiers would agree, even now, is one of the worst jobs to have on a battlefield, um, and that is the job of a medic. Okay, now these are field medics, battlefield medics. Um, on a battalion of 500 men, approximately 30 would be would be medics, uh, which is one medic to every 16 men. If your battalion comes under attack, um, you are trained slightly in combat, but n nowhere near what the, the regular soldiers are trained. A lot of the medics in the Second World War were voluntary as well. They were actual doctors that had come across um, to fight to help the war effort. Um, and, you know, being a battlefield medic, they you were supposed to be um, not attacked. So you were supposed to be, like, uh, almost innocent on a battlefield. Um, so if you saw the Red Cross on the helmet, you were not supposed to shoot at that particular soldier or that particular person. Um, the problem with that is, one, you don't always see that. Two, depending on what you're firing, you might just be firing at a group of people um, or a, a battalion or, you know, you might not be firing. You know, throwing a grenade to where gunfire is coming from could result in the death of two or three medics, um, which under the Geneva Convention would be... Um, illegal uh, you're not actually allowed to attack medics but like i said in warfare there is no real way of knowing um and i don't think a lot of people really cared i think when you're in that situation of you're being shot at um you shoot back um i don't i don't really know the ins and outs i've never been <laughs> never been in that situation myself but i can imagine if I was, I wouldn't really care whether the person shooting at me had a red cross on his helmet or not. Um, or if he was stood next to someone with a red cross on his helmet, I would just be shooting in that direction. So a lot of medics actually ended up losing their lives on battlefields um, when realistically they shouldn't have. But unfortunately, there are casualties in war, which is why being a medic was probably one of the worst jobs to have during the second world war now this job i had to double check i had to make sure that this was actually true because i always remember and i i'm assuming many of the my listeners here will have played with army men when you were younger the little green men um you had green men and grey men, I always remember the grey ones were German because they had the bigger helmets and the green ones were the British or Americans and you always found that there was one that looked like they were holding a flamethrower they were always on the German side, you never got the British with flamethrowers but you always got the flamethrower guy and I always thought that's a really strange thing surely flamethrowers is, is out of a video game you know, that's not a real weapon that they use during war. Well, turns out it is. The Germans had a flamethrower um, unit in their, in their army. And this was used for many things. Um, it was used for clearing, um, you know, debris, clearing paths and things like that. It was also used as a weapon. It was also used as intimidation. It was... Um, you know, I don't know how, if I would be more scared of someone running towards me with a flamethrower or, or with a gun, I think both are pretty dangerous, but the visual effect that you get from a flamethrower, um, I think would be enough to, to shit up most soldiers. The problem is if you were a German flamethrower, uh, soldier, you had strapped to your back a backpack that weighed around 80 kilograms now that is a lot that is extremely heavy it's not something you can really run with so if you come under fire you're probably not going to run away you're going to have to unless you take it off you're going to be crawling or, or walking away not only that there are two tanks on the back of a flamethrower one is nitrogen the other one 
is petrol or oil. It's extremely flammable. It only takes one bullet and that backpack is going to ignite like a bonfire. And it happened a lot, very, very regularly. It was very, very dangerous. And if you were stood in the vicinity of a flamethrower, when it went up, you would probably feel the aftermath of that as well. Um, So not only did it kill the person holding it, it probably killed everyone within sort of a 10-meter radius of them. And if you had maybe three or four all together and one went up, you'd probably kill everyone within a 50-60 meter radius. So these were very, very volatile weapons and there's probably a very good reason why they're not used in modern warfare anymore. Now this might be something that many Americans know. It's not something that's very well known to the British and that is what was known as flying the hump. So like I mentioned previously, the Second World War actually started in 1937. It started in Europe in 1939, which is what we're taught in schools. But Japan actually invaded China in 1937. And this is what, basically when the war actually started. Now the problem for this was China did not have the supplies to keep the Japanese at bay and they had a very good treaty with the Americans and this is part of the war that was very very underappreciated but for more than three years during World War II a force of mostly American airmen took on one of history's most complex and deadliest operations flying thousands of tons of supplies from India over the Himalayas into China in underpowered cargo planes so these were very very shit aircraft um it was basically this is what they called it they called it the hump but it was the world's first strategic airlift and it was invaluable to china's war effort against the japanese and it was a major factor in their victory there however it was a tremendous cost to the americans They lost 700 Allied planes that crashed or got shot down and 1,200 airmen. For every 340 tons delivered across the hump, that cost one life for every pilot. Uh, This was an unbelievably dangerous task. In fact, majority of these aircraft that actually disappeared have never been found. So not only did they sacrifice everything to to help out another country in a war effort, uh, and uh, you got to remember at this point, this was before America had even got involved in the war. So at this point, when we say you know America didn't join the war until 1941, well actually they were helping the Chinese out for four years before that. So, and again they were they were helping them out in underpowered aircraft that couldn't get over the Himalayas this was the problem the aircraft themselves couldn't get over the Himalayas so they had to fly through them and that's dangerous you know you're flying through a mountain range you're flying past mountains like Mount Everest trying to get through to China you're being bombarded by um, Japanese aircraft which were far superior to the americans at the time far better pilots than the americans at the time and a lot of the aircraft that disappeared actually did do exactly that they disappeared they were never found and never seen again so the americans were giving up a lot for the war effort before they even entered so they are some of the worst jobs that you could have been asked to do i think for every allied soldier the worst job that they were ever asked was d-day in 1944 for those of you who don't know what d-day was d-day was essentially the day that the war 
changed hands. Prior to 1944, the Germans almost seemed like they were going to win the war in Europe. After D-Day, the French were liberated. The war effort started to work. The Germans were pushed back from the French coast and further and further away. And it was the start of the end for the German uh, the German war. D-Day was for the soldiers, for anyone who's seen any films regarding it. Um, Saving Private Ryan probably gives you the best... Um, the best sort of depiction of what it might have been like but to me D-Day would probably be one of the worst things that any soldier had to go through during the Second World War regardless of anything that that no fear of coming off a landing craft you're on a ship that's being attacked in the ocean you then go onto a landing craft that's being attacked in the ocean you're then landing onto a beach that's being attacked by people in turrets miles or you know hundreds of meters away very safe very easy for them to just pick off everybody on the beach it was dangerous it was scary and they the allies lost roughly one man for every minute of d-day um it was it was a pure bloodbath but it was the most important day of the second world war and the reason i'm not going to go into too much detail is because it is a day or it's it's a point in the second world war that deserves its own episode entirely um so we will be doing an entire episode on the d-day landings um, covering the British, Canadian and American assaults on those beaches um, at Normandy. So, to me, D-Day was probably the worst. I think if you were Japanese, that torpedo sounds brutal, uh, being put inside a torpedo to blow yourself up. I think that sounds quite horrible. Um, I, I'm not sure I would have enjoyed any of those tasks Um yeah, they they were. It certainly uh, give me a, a, an aspect with my job. I don't think I'll be moaning too much about my job anymore. Um, hopefully, most of you guys will will be the same now. For those of you who do bitch and moan about your jobs, uh, I think you'll realise how lucky we actually have it today. When we could have been asked to be a rear gunner in an aircraft that was going to get shot at, or um, asked to fly over the Himalayas or put inside a submarine with 50, 60 guys and one toilet. It's, uh, there are some really bad jobs out there in the first world, uh, sorry, in the second world war that, uh, hopefully humans will never have to repeat. Um, but hey, we, we never know what the future will bring us. Uh, like I say, every time we can only learn from our history and hopefully, um, a lot of things have been learnt from from the Second World War, although the uh, evidence right now suggests that uh, certain countries haven't learnt from from the Second World War. Um, this this episode is actually recorded a couple of weeks before it goes out, so this is actually recorded on the sixteenth of march it will be going out a couple of weeks later so i'm not going to give too much because i don't know uh if the war in ukraine is still going on by the time this goes out but um obviously thoughts and prayers go out to everybody over there um, anybody who's got friends or family over there you know i hope they're safe um and i hope everyone is is okay um obviously unfortunately there's not a huge amount uh the west can do in regards to that so which is a which is a, a damn shame other than obviously show moral support um so hopefully when this episode goes out the the war has come to a peaceful end but right now i don't see that happening at the moment um anyway on a lighter note ladies and gentlemen if you have enjoyed this episode uh please let me know because this is a slightly different format of episode to what i normally do um, something a little bit more fun, I think. Um, hopefully, you guys have enjoyed it. 
let me know, drop me a message, drop me an email, uh, twihpod at gmail.com. If you are on Facebook and you're listening to this, get yourselves over to the Facebook group. Um, It's just This Week in History on Facebook. Just click join the group. I'll have a look. I'll approve it. Nine times out of ten, I approve people. The only ones I don't approve are people who have got like 600 groups that they're in because they normally send you spam. So if you if you look like you're going to be spamming me, send me a message just to let me know that actually I'm just really into my groups on Facebook. Um, if not, join the group. Let us know what you think. Leave us a review if you can. If you can get onto iTunes and leave us a review, that would be fantastic. And if you are enjoying these episodes but you're getting fed up with all those adverts, then why are you not on Patreon? Get yourselves over to Patreon. It's $5 a month. And for that $5, you will get access to these shows. So anybody who's listening to this on Patreon, you could actually be listening to this on the 16th of March when it's been recorded. For those of you who aren't on Patreon, you won't be getting it for two weeks. So this is the advantage. You do get these episodes a lot earlier. Not only that, you get them ad-free. All of these episodes are ad-free. And that $5 a month that you pay gets invested into the podcast and it goes towards me buying new equipment, making sure my laptop's up to scratch, things like that, um, and obviously improving the quality of this. So thank you very much, everyone. And just remember, we all have history. Make yours great. Bye-bye. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice-cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.